Well, good morning. It is so good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It is great to see you, and it's good to be back. Um, this church has loved me and been patient with me for so long. Uh, even just as I was up here um, just for the last few minutes thinking about the fact that I preached the worst sermon in the history of this church right there on a Sunday night, the very first time I ever got to preach here. I think I talked for an hour and five minutes um, and drove home and wanted to quit. And you were just so kind to me for years and years and years. And it's so good to be back with you this morning. Um, thank you. If, if we've not met, my name is Ben Griffith and it is my real privilege to be the next RUF campus minister at the, well, on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham. RUF has been on that campus for about 20 years and it's in a good place. And we're just so thankful for the privilege, the opportunity to be a part of how God is at work there, bringing students to himself, reaching students for Christ, equipping them for a lifetime of loving Jesus. Um, I get to talk with college students all day about their life and the gospel. And I can't imagine something better. And I'm so glad to be there. Um, we moved to Birmingham about six weeks ago. Um, I would love to keep you updated with what we're doing and how God's at work. There is a little QR code in the bulletin, as Knox said. Um, if, you, if you hold your camera over that, it will take you to a link that will allow you to sign up for our newsletter. And I'll be sending out regular updates. And there will be ways that you can partner with us um, in this. We do need a lot of people to give a, a little bit to help us do this work at Sanford. So we'd love for you to, um, to think about that. So again, thank you for the the privilege to open up God's word this morning. And our passage um, is Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians chapter one. And we're just going to be considering verses seven through 10 this morning. Um, and here's how I want us to think about these four verses. The apostle Paul here, who is writing to the church in Ephesus, there's a lot that he wants these Christians to do. There's a lot of change that he wants to see in their lives. There's a lot of sin that he has to confront, a lot of instruction and commands that he has to give. He's got a lot to say to these Christians about who they need to be and how they need to change. But before he gets to any of that, before he even whispers a word about what they need to do, he spends three whole chapters talking about what God has already done. He doesn't start by giving them instructions and commands. We don't even get the first one until chapter four. And we see that logic. We see that, um, that order throughout Paul and really throughout the whole Bible every time and without exception. Who we are and what we do is always a response to who God is and what God has already done. Or to say it another way, the imperatives of the Christian life, all of the do this and don't do that, be this and don't be that, all of those flow out of the indicatives of the Christian life, who God is, what he's done, what he's promised to finish and how he's at work. And that's what we see here this morning in these four verses. The apostle Paul is taking us all the way down into the very heart of the gospel by taking us all the way back into the past to see what Jesus has already accomplished. And he's gonna take us all the way forward into the future to see what God will soon complete. But why does he do that? Why does he take us all the way back and then all the way forward? It's so that we can live in light of those glorious realities right now in the present. 
Because the Christian life in the present is always lived in response to and in light of what Jesus has already done and what he will soon, what he will soon finish. Let's see how, that's a, how we see that at work here in these, um, in these four verses. Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things, in, to, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would send your spirit so that we might have eyes to see Jesus, so that we might have ears to hear Jesus speaking to us in this portion of your word and singing over us your love and your grace, so that either for the first time or for the 10,000th time this morning, we might be restored, healed, and renewed by just how good the good news of the gospel really is. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. I think we can bottle up and summarize everything that Paul is saying here in these four verses um, in just two statements. Okay, so two statements, a two-point sermon. Here we go. If the gospel is like a coin, it's, it's got two sides, and Paul wants to take us all the way down into the heart of the gospel, and he does it by showing us the two sides of the gospel coin. And here they are. Here are two main points this morning. Number one, in Jesus, God doesn't hold anything that is yours against you. And then number two, in Jesus, God does not withhold anything that is his from you. Those are our two points. So first of all, um, in Jesus, God doesn't hold anything that is yours against you. Paul writes in verse seven, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Redemption. Redemption is the idea of making a purchase, of paying a price so that you become the rightful owner of whatever it is that you're purchasing. That's what redemption means. It's a, it's a transaction, a trade. When someone says, I want that and I'll give you this for it so that it becomes mine. Redemption involves the idea of, of deliverance. Something is set free. Something is released from belonging to one rightful owner and redeemed into the possession of another rightful owner by the payment of a price. And Paul here, he's using that word because he's saying that at the heart of the gospel is the good news that Jesus has paid a price in order to set you free from what belongs to you, your sin, your guilt, your shame, and to purchase it for himself. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. At the heart of the gospel is the good news that a transaction has occurred. A purchase has taken place. His blood for our sin, his life for our guilt. In other words, what used to rightfully belong to you doesn't rightfully belong to you anymore. We used to be the rightful owner of our shame, of our guilt, of our condemnation. It was ours, it belongs to us, but it doesn't anymore. Because Jesus is saying, 
He's saying here through his word, I've bought it. A transaction has occurred and what used to have your name tag on it, what, what used to belong to you, now belongs to me and I've taken care of it. Just a few months ago, we moved to Birmingham. And if you've ever, if you've ever moved across states before, you know what this is like. Movers show up on the day of the move and they put little stickers all over your stuff, all over everything, okay? I'm gonna be finding little green stickers all over my stuff for the next few months because the movers want to make sure that when they unload stuff off of the moving truck, that they're moving your stuff and not somebody else's. Because we had, I don't know how many else's, how, how many other family stuff were, were packed into that truck as well. And so the little green sticker meant that it belonged to the Griffith family. Now, they wanted to do that because they wanted to identify what belongs to us. Y'all, in the same way, your sin has your name tag on it. It has your sticker on it. Your guilt, your condemnation, it belongs to you and nothing, no strategy in this world can peel it off. We have all sorts of strategies though for trying to deal with our sin, for trying to deal with our shame. We try to do better. We try harder. We try doing lots of Christian things. We try being really sorry but nothing can peel our name off of our sin. Paul is saying that only the blood of Jesus can do that. And that on the cross, Jesus became the rightful owner of your sin and it killed him. He died under the weight of your sin and my condemnation, what we deserve because it became his. He peeled your name off of your sin, stuck it on himself and he was crucified under the weight of it. Think about that. That moment that you're incredibly embarrassed about last week or last year, that pattern of sin that you're hiding really well, that ugly failure and series of failures, all of those times that you completely blew it, your whole lifetime of falling short of the glory of God, all of it, has changed ownership and it doesn't belong to you anymore because it belongs to Jesus and he was crucified for it. The father held what belongs to you against Jesus on the cross and he dealt with it fully and finally and completely. You know what that means? It means that if God, if God held what is yours against Jesus on the cross, then he will never hold it against you, ever. Not a drop of it, forever. In Jesus, God doesn't hold what is yours against you because he's already held it against Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It's almost like Paul is saying that he's putting two gladiators in the ring together and in one corner, there's your sin, all of it, all of your failure and brokenness and shame. That's in one corner and in the other corner is Jesus's blood. And what happens when the two gladiators go together? Paul would say it's not even a fair fight because one drop of the priceless blood of the Lamb of God is enough to obliterate all of it, all of it. The fight's over, his blood won and your guilt didn't survive. In Jesus, God doesn't hold what is yours against you?
because he's already held it against Jesus. That's the first big point. The first side of this gospel coin here that Paul wants to take us down deep into the heart of here. But listen, before we move on to the second part, I think we need to just sit here for a minute and just be honest about how hard it is to really believe this. I mean, we might say that we do. Maybe you've been a Christian for five days or five years or 50 years, and you would intellectually assent to the fact that you believe that your sins are forgiven and that Jesus died for your sins on the cross. You would say that. You would intellectually agree to it. But listen, somewhere in your heart, somewhere just below the surface, probably not too far down, there's a part of you that doesn't really quite yet believe that God doesn't hold what is yours against you. I mean, your official theology might say, yes, I believe that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But your lived out, functional, everyday theology might be something more like, well, no, I still think that there's some condemnation left for me. And that can lead to a life of looking really good and moral on the outside and eaten up with shame and guilt on the inside because you're trying so hard to deal with, with what's left that Jesus didn't deal with. You're familiar with the Apostles' Creed. We just affirmed our faith with it this morning. Christians have been affirming their faith with these words for thousands of years. And listen, in the Apostles' Creed, there's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of things that are hard to understand and hard to wrap your mind around in the Apostles' Creed. Things like the incarnation, things like the Trinity. But do you know what may be one of the hardest lines in the Apostles' Creed for some of us to believe this morning? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Do you really? Do you really believe that right now, God doesn't hold any of your sin against you? That he's forgotten it, that it's gone, that he doesn't see your name on the name tag anymore. Like the hymn writer says, my sin, not in part, but the whole of it has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. You see, Paul wants to take us down deeper into the heart of the gospel because there are places deeper in our own hearts where we really struggle to believe that this is true and really struggle to live out of it. But friends, here's the good news of the gospel, and it is so good that God doesn't forgive you to the degree to which you feel forgiven. In Jesus, God doesn't hold anything that is yours against you. That's the first side of this gospel coin here, the first point. And as if that wasn't good enough, there's a whole nother point. There's a whole nother side that Paul takes us to next. If number one was in Jesus, God doesn't hold anything that's ours against us. The second part is in Jesus, God doesn't withhold anything that is his from us. Now, I know I said this was a two-part sermon. There's two sides of the coin, but actually I cheated a little bit because this side of the coin actually has two little sides, okay? So part two has two little subpoints. Follow along with me. It goes like this. There are two things here that Paul wants to show us that God does not withhold any of from those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's his delight and his designs. His delight and his designs. So number one, in Jesus, God does not withhold his delight from you. 
Again, let's read the first, well, the whole part of verses seven and eight. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. Notice how Paul here, he just goes over the top. He could have stayed pretty dry, pretty boring, and just said something like, in him, um, or he could have just said something like, according to his grace, which he gave us. That would have made sense, but he just goes so far over the top and he says, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. God is not simply withholding punishment and consequences that we deserve. You know, grace is so much more than that. Grace is is so much more than just what God doesn't give you when you deserve it. Grace Grace is also about what God does give you that you don't deserve. Grace is not just about what God doesn't give, his wrath. It's about what God does give, his favor, his joy, his unmitigated delight and smile. Another way to think about grace is that grace is, it's not just God's favor in the absence of merit. Maybe you've heard it described like this before. It's not just favor in the absence of merit when you don't deserve it. Grace is also favor in the presence of real demerit. Um, Think about it like this. Favor in the absence of merit would be like if you had a job at a store, let's say in Midtown here in Hattiesburg, and you missed your shift one night. You didn't show up for work. And so the next day your boss calls you in and says, you didn't show up for work. You didn't do anything to contribute yesterday. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but I'm not gonna fire you and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna pay you for your shift anyway. That would be favor in the absence of merit. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but he gives you grace anyway. Favor though, in the presence of demerit, might go something like this though. You, you actually do show up for your shift at your job, but you show up wasted, drunk, and high. And then you run through the store with a baseball bat, destroying all the merchandise in the store. And then you physically attack some customers who are later gonna file multi-million dollar lawsuits against you, and they're gonna win those lawsuits. And then you steal the cash register, and then you burn the store to the ground. And I don't know how this illustration could get worse. I think it just ends with the store being burned to the ground. The next day, the the boss calls you in and he says, I saw it all. I know everything. And I'm going to pay those lawsuits for you, every cent of them. And you can keep the cash register. And I'm going to go to jail and serve your sentence for you. And when I rebuild the store that you just burnt down, I'm going to build a nice condo up at the top and you can live there rent-free for the rest of your life. Oh, and here's your check for your shift yesterday. That is favor in the presence of demerit. You might be thinking, no, that's crazy. No, that's grace. (laughs) And here's what we're told is that in Jesus, God doesn't just give you grace. He lavishes the riches of his grace on you. That word lavish, it means to cause something to overflow, to fill something up to the brim, to not hold any of it back, to go all in. It's kind of like this. When my kids, when my kids are making toast with Nutella, um, they don't just put Nutella on their toast. They lavish 
Nutella on their toast. I mean, if they could put a whole bottle on one piece of toast, they would. They, to, because to them, they would never dream of withholding any Nutella that could fit on that toast and keeping it in the jar, right? They're going all in. They want to put all of it. Don't spare any of it. And y'all, Paul is saying that that's how God is with his grace and favor and mercy and love and delight with you, not just at some point in the past, but right now, right now in Jesus. That's how God is with his favor and love to sinners saved by grace. God has never just shown you grace. He pours out the riches of it on you. He doesn't withhold any of it from you in Jesus. That is the default posture of God, your father towards you right now. Sheer limitless delight. The smile on his face is yours in Jesus because he pours out the riches of his grace on us. Here's another way of, of thinking about it. There are some things that God can't do. Have you ever thought about that? He can't be unfaithful. He can't lie. He can't break his promises. He can't sin. And in Jesus, God cannot be more delighted in you than he is right now. There is no more delight left to give. He's gone all in. He's not spared any of it. He is as delighted with you right now as he is with his son because you're in him. And you know what that means? It means that God doesn't love you less right now than he did when Jesus died for you on the cross. And he doesn't love you less right now than that moment that you really felt his presence and love when you first repented and believed. And as staggering as it is, he, he does not love you less right now than he will in heaven. Now, I struggle to believe that. Even I, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking that's going a little bit too far. I mean, I understand maybe the first part that God loves me as much as he, as he did when Jesus died for me. But what about, what about when I'm still failing and disappointing and stumbling and doubting and not believing? Does Jesus love me just as much then? I mean, certainly he's going to love me more in heaven and I'll have more delight of his in heaven when I'm not disappointing him all the time when I'm not struggling with sin and doubt, when life, when life hurts and I'm angry about it, or when I'm sad or anxious or scared or depressed, when God feels distant or, or altogether absent, it's really hard to believe that you have the smile of God then. It's kind of like this. When I was talking with a friend at some time, at some point in the, a few months ago about a trip that he took to Disney World. My friend is, he's probably in his early 40s. He, he has children uh, from teens down to about five years old and he loves Disney World and his family loves Disney World. And so they save up for months, um, save up all this money to just go and blow it at Disney World. And in, in, his, in his, his exact words are, he hemorrhages money at Disney World. He just saves it up to blow it all at Disney World. Um, they just go over the top, but then they get back to the real world, to real life, and they're in debt. 
and they have to eat rice and beans for weeks because they don't have any money because they blew it all at Disney World. It's easy to think that that's how God's delight in you goes, that it fluctuates according to how well you're doing or it fluctuates according to how life feels. He really loved you on the cross and he'll really love you again in heaven, but right now in the real world, right now in the real life of your struggles or your pain or your, or your suffering, it can feel like something's changed. But the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, God does not withhold anything that is his from you ever. The riches of his lavish delight are all yours all the time in Jesus. And even if your experience of his delight may fluctuate, in Jesus, the reality of his delight never fluctuates. Like the hymn writer says, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. In Jesus, the smile of, or the, the look on God's face towards you is a smile that never changes, even if everything about your life does. Which means that you can know that he's at work for your good and that one day he will complete what he started. And that's where Paul takes us next and where we'll finish. How is this all gonna end? Where is this all going? Well, our second point here, the second point to the second point, is that in Jesus, God doesn't withhold his designs from you. His designs, his plans, where this is all gonna go. Again, in verses eight through 10, Paul tells us that God, from the very beginning, even before Genesis 1-1, okay? Before, before in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul reminds us that God has had a plan, a purpose for the world that he's making. In verse 10, he calls this a plan for the fullness of time. In other words, God hasn't just been making this all up as he goes along. The story of the world and the story of your life is not like a choose your own adventure for God where he's not really sure what's gonna happen next, but he's having a good time and it's all, it's all a big adventure. No, the story of the world and the story of your life, Paul reminds us, is according to a set of blueprints that God designed a long, long time ago. And he calls this set of blueprints, his will, his purpose, a plan for the fullness of time. But listen, here's the thing. For most of the story, as it has developed in the whole history of the world from Genesis 1-1, for most of the story, it's been really hard to access exactly what God is up to. What is God doing? Where is this all going to go? The only person that knew was God himself. To everyone else, especially the participants in the story, it was a secret or what Paul calls a mystery, okay? Now, when you see that word mystery in the New Testament, it doesn't mean what we normally mean by the word mystery. Usually a mystery for us is like a conundrum. It's something we don't understand, but if we're smart enough, we can figure it out, right? Um, like Sherlock Holmes is a good mystery detective because he's just smarter than everybody and he can put the pieces together and figure out what nobody else could. But in the New Testament, this word mystery has a slightly different meaning. It means something that God knows that it's impossible for us to know unless God lets us in. 
It's a secret that we're on the outside of unless God lets us in. In other words, we can't figure it out. God has to tell us. That's what a mystery is, and that's what Paul is saying here. And we're told here that the whole story of the world, what God has been up to and what he's still up to and where this is all going to go, that it's been a mystery, unsolvable by everyone until Jesus showed up. And there's this incredible little throwaway phrase in 1 Peter chapter 1 that just stops me in my tracks every time I see it, where, where Peter says that the salvation that was prophesied in the Old Testament, in other words, everything that's going on in the Old Testament, that the prophets were trying to tell people what God was up to, that he, he, he says this, he said it was something into which angels longed to look. Something into which angels longed to look. In other words... From Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Matthew chapter 1, the whole story of the world up until the arrival of Jesus, even the angels in heaven to some degree were guessing what God was up to because they didn't know the whole story. They were scratching their heads. They couldn't put all of the pieces together. And so don't you know that it especially threw them off, threw them off when they saw the God that had made them become something that he had made and suffer and die and be nailed up to a Roman cross in defeat. Paul or Peter is saying there that even the angels didn't see that one coming. Satan certainly didn't. He thought he had won. But it was the whole time the wisdom of God and the power of God, like Paul says in, in, first, in first Corinthians. But now, Paul is saying, now he has made known to us the mystery. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. Jesus is God's way of letting us into the secret of his plan for the fullness of time. He's given us in Jesus the end of the story. He's let it, and, and, and what is it? Where is God going with all this? What's the end of the story that we've been led into? Well, it's verse 10. Here's the plan. Here's the design all along to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Y'all, when we pray the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what you're praying for every time. You're praying for heaven to collide with earth and with your own life in such a way that it doesn't crush you, but it heals you. We're praying for heaven to collide with earth in such a way that it heals it and puts it all back together again and restores it and makes it whole. And God is saying, this, that's where this is all going. This whole time, ever since Genesis 1, ever since Genesis 1-1, I have set heaven on a collision course with earth and it has been barreling towards earth from the start and nothing can stop it or throw it off course. God's old plan, in other words, is to make all things new in Jesus through his life and death and resurrection and reign and return. God is saying, that's the plan. That's the design. That's where I'm, that's where I'm going with all this and I'm giving you a sneak peek. I'm letting you into the mystery of what my kingdom's gonna look like because I'm sending you the king ahead of time. The kingdom's coming but the king has already come. 
And y'all, how can you know that that's where this is all going to go? Because if you're honest, don't you struggle sometimes? You look around at your life, you look around at the world, you look around at your family, you look inside of yourself, and you can really struggle to think that this is all going somewhere good. Because sometimes it feels like it's all falling apart and nothing can put this back together again. How can we know? I think Paul knows that that's exactly the question that we're going to struggle with. And so he reminds us that we have a sneak peek of where this is all going in Jesus himself. We have a guarantee that that's what the future is going to look like because something from the future has come into the present. It's Jesus himself. Because Paul says that God is going to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And y'all, Jesus is the very first thing of heaven that has been united to the things of earth in a way that they'll never come undone again. Jesus, the king himself, who took on flesh, the word who became flesh, and who has united himself to you. Do you realize when you say that you're in Jesus, that you're united to him, that you are that you are the first installment of what's coming. Jesus has started to unite heaven to earth with you. So it's coming. There's so much more left to come in him and in you and me. God has already started to bring about his designs to unite heaven and earth. He's led us into the mystery. Think about it like this. Um, several years ago, when my wife, well, now my wife, Rebecca, but we were just dating at the time, um, we threw her an epic surprise birthday party at the Oak Grove skating rink out there, okay? Some of you in this room were there and you remember what this was like. And it's not, it was an 80s themed surprise party out, out at the skating rink. And it, I haven't been there in a long time. I don't know, but it wasn't too hard to pull off an 80s themed um, birthday party because nothing had changed in there since about the 80s. But anyway, we, just, we, we invited all of Rebecca's friends. Um, she was the RUF intern at that time. We invited current students and former students and friends. And we designed this surprise birthday party. It took some time to plan it and to figure out how we were going to pull it off. Okay, so you know, they don't just happen. You have to design and plan these surprise birthday parties. Well, we did, and we pulled it off perfectly. We executed the surprise flawlessly. Um, but here's the thing. In order to pull that off, um, we had to do a few things. We had to keep her in the dark, right? And so our experience of the surprise birthday party leading up to it was awesome. Everything's going according to plan. But her experience of the party leading up to it was completely different because she wasn't let into the secret, right? All that she knew is that everybody on the day of the party canceled their, their plans with her because they didn't want to be around her because they were scared of, letting, of, of spoiling the secret, right? There were people that would just walk past her pretty rudely on campus at Southern Miss because they didn't want to give away the secret. Nobody wanted to talk to Rebecca on the day of her surprise birthday party. They were so afraid of spoiling the secret. Um, so her experience of that day was actually really confusing and really frustrating. And especially when, when I got in the car and I was like, you know, we had a date planned. Um, but on the way to the date, we had to swerve out of the way to go to the Oak Grove skating rink. 
so that I could drop off something to a friend there. That was super shady, right? And so her experience of the surprise party leading up to it was completely different. What would it have been like though? If some, at some point in the middle of the frustration and confusion and like, you know, the keeping her in the dark, what if I had spoiled a secret and said, Rebecca, there's a party coming and everybody that you know and love is invited and it's going to be awesome and it's going to make this all worth it. And when you walk in and see who's there, it's going to blow you away. Now, granted, me spoiling the surprise for her like that, it, was, it would have spoiled the surprise. It would have taken the surprise away. It would have ruined the experience of a surprise birthday party. But y'all, listen, your father in heaven is not afraid of spoiling the surprise of what's coming. He's let you into the secret and he said, this is what's coming. I'm going to spoil the secret. I'm going to let you into what's coming because life on this side of it can be really confusing and really frustrating and it can hurt. And so I'm telling you what's coming so that you can live in light of it, so that you can anchor your hopes into that day and live in light of the future right now. One day God will unite all things in Jesus. It's gonna be a party that's never gonna end. And he's let you into the secret that it's coming. And until he comes, he invites us to live right now in the light of that future. May he continue to lavish his rich grace upon us, to fill our sails with his grace so that we might follow him, keeping our eyes on him, the one who has loved you and me with unfailing love. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. We pray that either for the first time this morning or for the 10,000th time, that it would wash over us in a new way, that it would hit us in a different way. Would you come and seek out those places in our hearts where, we, where we're struggling, where we're doubting, where there is unbelief? Would you flood the darkness in our hearts with the light of your glorious grace and give us, Lord Jesus, the eyes to see you seeing us with a smile on your face? and continue to change our lives by seeing you, the one who knows us and loves us and has given your life for us. We pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.